0: Did they even record the part where I called you Dr. Furch? Oh, great. Well, you know, in my defense, there is no defense. defense. (laughs) Labels are really hard for me. But I do have a reason. Somebody asked me that after this morning. Did you really call him Dr. Furch? And I said, yes. And they said, why? I said, the brain can't answer the question why. He kind of looked at me. And they said, well, do you have any suggestions of what might have contributed to that? And I said, yes, if you really want me to tell you. Six months ago, we hired a new senior vice president at one of my hospitals who I reported to, and I thought it would be politically very astute and advisable if I learned his name. You know, most of the time, all the people I've worked with, I don't know their names. You know, I know their faces, and and we chat, but I don't know their names because names are in my most energy-intensive part of the brain. But I decided I really needed to learn his name. You know, you report to them, probably ought to call him by his name once in a while. So I had stickers up all around my house, Dr. Wayne Firsch. Dr. Wayne Firsch everywhere I went. <laughs> I get to Australia, you know, here's Dr. Wayne French, but I, haven't, I don't have stickers <laughs> up around my house about Dr. Wayne French because I didn't report to him. So yeah, the first night about three times I called him Dr. Firsch. It is what it is, folks. (laughs) All right. If I saw them side by side, I would know them apart. You do realize that piece. All right, brain benders, let's go. Word in a word, top left. Doesn't matter how it's spelled, how does it sound? I thought I heard it. Died in the wool. Very good. Got it? W-O-O-L. Second on the left. Slightly overcast. Third on the left. Word in a word. Shot in the dark. Fourth on the left. Split decision. Top right. Tree in the street. Good. You guys are fast. Second on the right. Never on Sunday. Third on the right. Fourth on the right. And head's backwards or... Heads up. You know, you're, you're developing software, literally, in your brains. Every time you do a set, you lay down another layer of myelin. You can go to my website. There's hundreds of these. They're brain aerobic exercises. You need 30 minutes of brain aerobic exercises every day to slow down the onset of symptoms of aging, hopefully prevent Alzheimer's. So these are, the, these are whole brain puzzles, so use them. So well, here's another one of the paintings what do you think of that one I think it's fascinating um, what, well, I find things interesting like the ears are not the same size you know they're the arms on the couch but they certainly give you the illusion of of ears and these actually look you know like decorations well, this is on her hand this one is on something else but they give you the illusion of eyes and so on and so forth. Now I'm going to turn it around again because you know I love to see them the opposite way. And it looks very different often to my brain. So when you look at that for a minute and then you go back and look at this one, they look they look slightly different and it's just it's just been turned around, which means that depending on your lead eye, If it's a right lead eye, it tends to look at the left side of whatever it's looking at first, and of course vice versa. So that means none of us really see anything exactly the same based on our own brain configuration and lead eye and so on and so forth. All right. So since this is Sabbath, I threw in a couple of extra scripture scriptures because sometimes people think that brain function is new age and I tell them it absolutely is. This is the 21st century and the book of Daniel said in the last days what would be increased? Knowledge and now we're getting brain function information. To me that's an increase in knowledge and just because certain groups of people who are often called New Agers have gotten this information and thought, Wow, what wonderful information does not make the information itself New Age in any negative sense of the word. So when I, when I do presentations with people who, who do use scripture, I try to, th- to put in scripture that speaks to the topic because I found something about everything. If I just take time to look for it, it might be slightly different words, but it's there. So, the Bible writers, we believe they were impressed to put things on paper. They still put it on paper through their own brain function. And that's the reason I think the four Gospels are so different. Because they were each written by, of course, a different author, who we believe had a different brain bent, and so if you think of my face as a clock, 12, 6, 9, 3, draw two lines, then this posterior left part, we think Matthew probably wrote that, because he recorded entire sermons in detail, and this is the rote memorization, the detail part of the brain, on the right posterior side, probably John wrote that, because this is all about avoiding conflict and harmony and connection. And John starts out with what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Very connecting type of writing. Uh, front to left is probably Luke. It's the more inductive, deductive part of the brain, analyzing things, and he starts out the book of Luke basically by saying, you know, I have collected a lot of data, and I've analyzed it, and here are my conclusions. And that's a very inductive-deductive type of styling, which leaves Mark, by default, who may have written the Book of Mark, aligned with the frontal right part of the brain that likes everything unusual and different and variety and never wants to do the same thing twice in the same way. And when you do read the Book of Mark, you find that he adds little unusual snippets of information you won't find anyplace else. If you're looking for chairs, there's a whole second row empty. If you prefer to stand, please do so. I don't, it does not bother me. And you're free to get up and move around anytime you want to. Remember that. But if you do want to sit, there's room. All right, so we're talking this afternoon about it matters what you think. And it matters in a whole variety of different ways, and for those of you who want the big picture, we'll take about a five-minute break, and then we'll talk about the new science of epigenetics, which is so much fun. You'll love it. So Paul says in Philippians, these are the types of things that we're supposed to think about. How many of those examples are negative? I don't see any that are negative. And it doesn't mean that when you're in school and all kinds of things that you can always think about noble things. I mean, tell me what is noble about mathematics. There might be something. But the bottom line is, stop whining. Whining is anger, squeezing out through a very small opening, and it negatively impacts your brain and body. So it's the principle you've got to get here. That is not Pollyanna thinking. I mean, if something bad happens, it doesn't mean you don't acknowledge it. But you immediately see if you can find some, something for which to be grateful. So you broke a leg. Well, you can be grateful you didn't break both of them. You know, what can you do that will move you into positive electromagnetic energy? Because it's critical. So we're going to talk about the power of thoughts because you are what you think. There is even a scripture that says what? As you think in your heart, you are. And we talked about that probably on Wednesday, that the neurons in your heart has a minimum of 40,000 neurons that look just like the neurons in your brain, use the same food, same neurotransmitters, As you think with your neurons, especially with your heart, depending on what you're thinking about, that's eventually who you're going to become because our thoughts are so powerful. So we're going to talk about them in five different areas. And some of it may be a review for you, and hopefully all of it is going to put this information in a slightly different uh, context for you. So the reason that your thought matter, thoughts matter is because they program your subconscious mind. The brain can be divided into three functional layers. We've talked about that. They're just think of them like gears in a vehicle with an automatic transmission. and you've got a first gear and a second gear or a first and second layer. Those are both subconscious. But they have a tremendous impact on how we behave. The third layer is largely subconscious, but we think between 5 and 10% of what goes on in that part of the brain you can actually bring to conscious awareness. And the more you can become aware of, the more you can manage, because here's a brain rule you can only manage what you can label and describe. So it's really important to try to connect your behaviors with what you've learned and what's happened to you in the past and so on. So whatever you think, especially your mindset, whether it's positive or negative, creates pictures in your brain. And sometimes people say to me, I don't make pictures in my brain. And I go, if you're human, you do. It's just some people never stop long enough to look at their pictures So, I mean, this is so simple. Think of a carrot. Got it? That's a picture in your brain. Of course, everybody's carrot would be different. And if we asked you to draw it and you could really draw what you saw, they would be different. I don't know if I've told you my favorite story about that. I was lecturing to a couple hundred firefighters, that was interesting. They were all male. That was before women were allowed to be firefighters. So they're all male. They're all big. And I made the comment about what we think is really important, although each one of us has a unique brain and we really never exactly think the way anybody else thinks. And if you try to get someone else to agree with the way you think, they may agree, but they never are going to really think the way you think because it can't happen. So there's this hunk in the back. He stands up and he says, you're wrong. And I said, well, I may be. In what particular do you think I am an error? Well, he said, you said, we, we each have a different brain and we never think alike. I mean, you're just looking at 200 firefighters here and we all think the same. And I thought, oh, great. But he was a little arrogant about it. And all. I I wasn't going to argue with him, but eh, something about my brain didn't quite want to let it go. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's just do a little experiment, because you may be absolutely correct. Let's do a little experiment and see if, if all 200 of you think of the same thing. Oh, sure, he says, let's do that. I guarantee you, we all will. I'm going, oh, this will be good. So I said, um, all right. I want each of you to pull up in your brain a picture of your favorite type of dog. Just pull up a picture. And then I said to the hunk, what's your picture? He goes, Great Dane. I said, good. Anybody else pull up a picture of a Great Dane? How many hands went out? None. And he goes, what do you mean? What are you guys thinking of? Well, they were thinking of 200 different breeds of dog and so on and so forth. So I said, now all of you pull up a picture of a Great Dane. If I asked you to draw it and you were a good artist, none of them would look the same. So I said, that's the beauty of questions. Because if you ask questions and get more information about what a person's thinking, maybe you can create a little bit more accurate picture. So I said to the hunk, "Uh, all right, um, What's the color? He says, color's dark brown. And then the rest of the group started doing my work for me, and they said, how tall? He goes about 32 inches at the shoulder. Somebody else says, puppy or adult? Good question. He says, adult. And so they go on, and they're getting more information. And finally, somebody says, male or female? And he goes, I don't know. One of the guys says, well, look. Look. So finally, we've got a somewhat similar consensus of what maybe this Great Dane might look like. And the guy is back there scratching his head, and he goes, Boy, I would never have believed it. And I wanted to say, Just sit down and listen. But I didn't. (laughs) So I said, All right. Now, we're not going to spend any time on this, but I do want to point something else out here. There was no consensus in this room of 200 firefighters who have the same profession on something as simple as pulling up the picture in your brain of a dog. Have you all seen a Great Dane? They all had. All right, I said, so why don't you just turn that word around, and instead of dog, we now have God. How many of you have seen God? Nobody put their hand up. Said, so how in heaven's name are we ever going to agree on what God looks like? It's not possible. So figure out for you what God looks like and don't worry about whether anybody else has a similar or a different description. It's all about you and your best friend. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And you need to get that clear because every brain is different and you will never ever think exactly the same thing that anybody else does. But we argue about things and we think that if we repeat something uh, 500 times and our voice gets louder each time and we put on some pejoratives and maybe some ridicule and shame and maybe that other brain will finally get it. Yeah, what you'll do is shut down the brain and they won't get anything. So stop going there. So your thoughts create internal pictures. We make them all the time about everything. Those first two layers can't use language. They can see the picture that you have created in working memory by what you thought. And they will tend to follow the pictures. And that's what's critical About always speaking positively. Because the minute you say a negative, you still pop up the first picture. But if the brain is mature, you know, one of my favorite is don't touch the stove. What's the picture? Touching the stove. So we say to the kid, don't touch the stove. The kid touches the stove. Now what do we do? Punish the kid. We gave them the picture of touching the stove by the the way we talked. Because the brain will always make the first picture. If your brain's mature and there's a don't, that's supposed to tell you that what they said is not what they meant. Now you've got to figure out what they meant. And work by Daniel Wegner, I love it, because he says, if you say, don't think about the white bear... What goes into working memory? A picture of the white bear, and that's all you want to think about. But now you've got a don't. All right. If they don't want you to think about the white bear, what do they want you to think about? Who knows is absolutely right. Sometimes somebody will say, oh, probably a a brown bear. Well, who said they even want you to think about a bear? They only told you what not to do, not what to do. So it's critical that you always speak in positives to yourself and others. You tell your brain what you want to have happen as if it's happening. You stop talking about what you don't want. Because the minute you talk about what you don't want, that's the picture that's going to go into the brain. If you have a behavior that you need to change, and you tell yourself, don't do this, you will most likely increase the number of times you do the behavior because now it's up here in working memory so that's just critical you always want to avoid future tense because the brain is very smart and if you say I'm going to lose weight the brain will say good luck I don't know when you're going to, but that's future tense, so when we get there, I'll help you. Do you realize that you never, ever get there when you're always going to? You must speak as if it's happening right now. I told you with my first hip surgery I gained 13 pounds. That was just dreadful on my size frame. But I wasn't prepared for the—I hadn't been able to exercise for a year, and I wasn't prepared quite for the recovery— My second surgery this last April, I gained about a pound and a half, and it's already gone. Such a deal. But I had to say to myself, oh my glory be, I weigh 138 pounds. Hmm, okay, I weigh 125 pounds. Did I? No. No. But I gave my brain the picture of what I wanted to have happen as if it was a done deal. And I tell you, it was really it was really great when I finally got back down there and that's I purposed that I would avoid that again at all costs. Carolyn Miss has done a lot of research about thoughts, and this is what she says. Negative thoughts build negative cellular memories. I threw that in here because the second section is on cellular memory. Remember that. Positive thoughts build positive cellular memory. All thoughts that carry mental, emotional, or spiritual energy. Can you think of any thoughts that wouldn't carry one of those? I can't. All thoughts that carry mental, emotional, or spiritual energy produce biological responses that are stored in cellular memory. So not only do you make the pictures that the subconscious layers follow, but you file that information in your cell nucleus as cellular memory. You can then pass that on to your children, and your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren, and probably your great-great-grandchildren. So it is critical what you think. So number two, when you think positively and speak positively, positive instructions highly increase the likelihood that you're going to get the outcomes you want. You won't always, but you will increase that likelihood because you gave them the first picture the first time. There's nothing for them to... Convert. Nothing for them to wonder. What did they mean? Not long ago that I saw that acted out in my family. My middle son has the most darling little girl. You know, I, I raised three boys, didn't have any girls. So I got a couple of female dogs, wasn't quite the same. So he's got this darling little five-year-old girl. And she loves me. It's really hard not to like somebody who thinks you're just the bee's knees. They live on a street where you can't park right in front of the house. You have to park across the street. So on this particular visit, I was going to visit them, and I pull up across the street, and I see the curtains moving in the front window, and I know she's been watching for me. So the front door opens, and she comes barreling down the sidewalk, you know, running as fast as her little pink shoes can take her. And her father comes to the door and yells, Don't run into the street. What's the picture in a five year old's brain running into the street? And before I could even say anything, here comes a car and missed her by a hair's breadth. And it was a little harrowing, to say the least. And, you know, her mother's screaming and her dad is all flustered and she doesn't really know what happened. And it it was a rather unpleasant first hour in the visit. And so I said to him, You know, we've gotten some new research, and first of all, I want to apologize that I did not talk to you kids this way because I didn't know anything about it. So I told him the difference between saying, don't run into the street, and what what would be the positive of that? Stop at the curb. You know, there's all kinds of options you could think of saying. I said, I wish I had done that with you, but if you say stop at the curb... Then there's a totally different picture in that child's brain compared to, don't run into the street. And he goes, yeah, I can see that. Okay, so then we had a fairly decent visit, and I left. And you never know whether they're going to get it. I mean, after all, it's mom saying it. So I'm back from a trip somewhere, and I'm going to visit her again. Come up, park across the street. See the curtains in the window move. Front door opens. She comes barreling down the sidewalk. Her father comes to the front door, and what do you suppose he says? Stop at the curb, honey. What did she do? She stopped at the curb. She ran right up to the curb. Her, Her little toes of her shoes are hanging over, but she stopped at the curb and there's lots of research that when you give positive instructions you've got about an 85% chance of getting the outcome you want so that's the way you need to talk to yourself so that you can get the outcome you want and we we do the opposite don't forget your homework and what happens they forget their homework so it's remember your homework i don't want to be fat <laughs> what's the picture Tell yourself what you weigh. Make it realistic. There's no way I'm going to weigh 80 pounds unless I have a mental disorder. Make it realistic and give your brain that picture to follow. Whatever you do, avoid pejoratives. You know what a pejorative is? It's a negative that sometimes you use even in joking. So you get up in the morning and you go, I feel another bad day coming on. You will have a bad day because your brain will do everything possible to help you get whatever you've put in working memory. It makes no judgment about right, wrong, good, bad, desirable, undesirable. Bad day, okay. And you might joke about it, but your first and second layers won't be joking. They'll be following the picture of whatever you see in your brain that makes it a bad day for you. They miss the joke. They take that statement literally. So I feel terrible when somebody makes a mistake and they go, oh, I'm so stupid. The brain goes, oh, we're stupid, are we? Okay, fine, let's do something else stupid. Because it wants congruence. The minute you think a thought, your search engine begins to collect from memory any other situations that are in that same genre. So if you keep telling yourself how stupid you are, pretty soon you will be. Because your brain will not do anything to help you be smart because it thinks it would be good to be stupid. All right, what about your health? We talked briefly this morning about the new research on the fact that unforgiveness is lethal to your health. Every thought you think, it doesn't just affect the cells in your brain it affects every cell in your body. And it does that because when you think a thought, it changes the ratio of those neurotransmitters in your brain's chemical stew, about 60 of them. And as those neurotransmitter ratios and levels change, it suppresses or strengthens your immune system. So it will move you toward being healthier or toward being less healthy. So serotonin, for example, it's a powerful chemical. It has everything to do with how much energy you have, your outlook on life, whether or not you can experience joy. You know, the human brain is hardwired for joy. That's where we're supposed to spend most of our time because it's the only emotion that has no negative consequences when maintained over time. All the other protective emotions, anger, fear, and sadness, if you maintain them over time, you'll always have negative outcomes, not with joy. And it has everything to do with sleep. How well you sleep, how well you fall asleep, how well you stay asleep. When you think or speak negatively, even in jest... Or maintain a negative mindset. You lower your levels of serotonin. Now that's going to affect any and all of those plus other things. Then we go to the doctor because we're not sleeping well. Hmm. Or for whatever reason. And we've contributed to that because negativity burns up serotonin. Norepinephrine, we've talked about that. That's a... um, Both a hormone and a neurotransmitter, and it helps us manage stress, but it also has everything to do with how we regulate mood. And a mood is just a feeling that you choose to hang on to for a long time. When you have feelings or thoughts of hopelessness or helplessness, you reduce your levels of norepinephrine, which will definitely not only impact your mood, but how you manage stress. So this morning we mentioned that experiencing negative things, being injured, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually, socially, financially, you name it, that the, the problem with that is that we usually develop a victim position. We move into the poor me, look what happened to me, let me tell you about it and hopefully you'll feel sorry for me. Maybe you'll cut me a little slack and I won't have to perform like everybody else because I'm a victim, right? I've been injured. When you're in that victim position, you also alter your norepinephrine. So now you don't manage stress as well and it will impact your mood. Are you beginning to see that everything dovetails with everything else? We are an integrated system. You change one thing, it's going to change something else, always. And then we've got dopamine. What does dopamine do? It's the feel-better chemical. And it doesn't necessarily make you feel great, it just makes you feel better than you felt a little bit ago. And it's important to understand that. Because we misunderstand disorders like anorexia, like cutting. You know what cutting is? And people come to me and say, I don't get it. I can't understand the reason they're refusing to eat. Well, as the body and brain start to starve, it feels pain, all things being equal. And now you pour out endorphins. You pour out adrenaline. Now dopamine goes up. And so you actually feel better than you did before, even though you don't feel very good. We often have cutters in our locked mental health units. And we had a new nurse the other day who came to me, and she said, I don't get it. You know, she's in here to try to get better, and every time we turn around, she's found something to cut herself with. What's going on? She can't be making herself feel better. And I go, oh, yes, she is. Because the anticipation of hiding but doing a little cutting is going to pump adrenaline, and that gives you energy. And as adrenaline goes up, so does dopamine. So now you already feel better. And as you cut yourself, the brain feels pain, so it pours out endorphins, the brain's natural morphine. And so they keep cutting because they feel better after they cut than they felt before they started cutting. And now you have to help them learn good ways of feeling better or they're going to spend the rest of their life cutting. So this has everything to do with certainly the ability to experience any kind of pleasure. Muscle steadiness, you know, that's what happens in Parkinson's disease. You don't have enough dopamine and so you shake. can't keep your muscles steady. And it impacts the ability of the prefrontal lobes to hold on to information long enough for you to think about it. And that's huge. When you think you can't cope, then your levels of dopamine fall. And that's going to lead you down a couple of roads. Either you're going to develop an addictive behavior that increases dopamine, or you'll develop something called anhedonia, which means... You're just apathetic, unable to experience pleasure. You're just, you know, one foot in front of the other. Life is hard and then you die. Why was I born? It's not pretty. Peter McWilliams wrote a book entitled You Can't Afford the Luxury of a Single Negative Thought. Actually, I'm not sure the word single was in there. But it's close to that. Remember, rote memorization's hard for me. <laughs> he says that a negative mindset is the precursor of all life-threatening illnesses, meaning it will suppress immune system function, and it will leave you open to the development of illnesses and diseases that you might otherwise avoid. So I emailed Peter because this is a negative book title. <laughs> Go figure. So I says, Peter, I love your book. It's got a negative title. Talk to me about that. He emails me back and he says, well, I didn't want a negative title either. It's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? I said, yeah. He says, the publisher refused to publish it unless I used this title. They said, if you write a book that says, be healthier by positive thinking, nobody's going to buy it. But he says, you've got a catchy title because so many people are used to speaking in negatives. They'll probably buy the book. Now, that's a really sad commentary on us, isn't it? But I think he's right. I've given you examples these last few days of the ability to even measure the strength of a person's immune system by how much immune globulin A is in the saliva. You can do that over and over and over again and measure it before and after events and watch it go up and watch it go down. and that that happened it can happen in numbers of minutes. So when you have a negative mindset and are speaking negatively, know that you are number one diminishing the level of IgA in your saliva, which helps protect you from things you take in from the outside. And in general, suppressing your immune system. So we can sometimes contribute to our own illnesses. So let me come to energy. All we are is energy. I know some people get absolutely frantic when I even say the word energy. I don't know what they think we're talking about, but they get terrified. Well, all we are is energy. When you cut it to the bottom line, when you're out of energy, you're out of life. Because it takes energy to digest your food. It takes energy to breathe, to have your heart pump, to think, to move your muscles. All we are is energy. And it's closely connected with our style of thinking. Positive thoughts and feelings add energy to your system. Have you ever had good news when you were really anxious about something and all of a sudden you got good news and you feel wonderful and you got all this energy? Because positive thoughts increase energy. Negative thoughts deplete it. In fact, McWilliams says that anxiety and anger are energy eaters. He says, just, just picture, they're going through your brain and body just sucking up all the energy. Interesting PET scan studies show that it is physiologically impossible to be fearful and appreciative at the same time. That is a really helpful metaphor for me. Now let me give you the way I do this. I already told you that I have this huge cemetery in my brain. It has no headstones. Good. All right, well, I have this wonderful stage in my brain. It's pretty much Carrara marble. It's a half circle, four steps, got a lot of corinthian pillars, uh, lots of gold leaf and so on and so forth. I have really expensive taste. Good thing we can create things in our brain. Cuz I'm probably never going to have that on this planet. So we have a stage. Create a stage in your brain. I don't care what it looks like. Mine cost about 30 billion dollars. And there's a a little wing on each end of the stage just like there would be on a Broadway stage and you have you are on stage every, every moment of your life until you die and then they carry you off feet first there are four actors that you have available for your stage at any given moment one of them will be on the stage with you But only one. So I'm on stage, I have a positive mental set, everything's going well. Joy is the actor on stage with me. Dress them up so you quickly, clearly identify who's who. You got three other actors that are in the wings at the moment one of them is anger, one of them is fear. And one of them is sadness. So everything's going well. And then I get some, you know, I get some really bad news. And I really get a little momentarily frightened that, you know, maybe they're not going to live. Okay, joy goes off the stage. Fear comes onto to the stage with me. Because you can only have one actor on stage with you at any time. I decide how long fear is going to stay there. I'm going to decide if I get involved with anxiety and worry and keep fear there, which is going to suppress my immune system. Or am I going to say, you know, there's really nothing I personally can do about this. You know, I'll send some emails or I'll send flowers or I'll go and visit or whatever positive action I can take. But I choose to avoid being embroiled in all of this fear and anxiety, at which point fear goes back into the wings and now joy and contentment comes out. Or something happens that invades my boundaries and here comes anger, go through the same process. Or I experience a loss, sadness comes out. Those are all appropriate emotions for what's happening in my life. I decide how long they're going to stay on stage with me. And I've met people who have kept anger, fear, sadness on stage with them year after year after year. Joy is just sitting in the wings, twiddling its thumbs, waiting for you to get your act together. And the brain and body work best at joy. So the minute you experience fear or anxiety, especially if you think of something for which to be grateful... Fear will go back in the wings and joy will come out because they cannot coexist on the stage at the same time. You can have them running back and forth. You know, I feel sad for a while and then I feel better and then I feel sad again and then I feel better. I mean, that's a choice. I mean, they get tired running back and forth, I'm sure, because the brain was designed to work at joy. I've mentioned this before. The brain wants congruity. Congruity. And when we talk about congruity of communication, that means your words, your body language, your gestures, your meta-message, the tone of your voice, everything matches, because now it's a clear message. Well, when in the grip of a specific emotion, whichever one it is, joy, anger, fear, sadness, I only talk about core emotions because those are the ones that you can see on the face of the fetus during pregnancy when you do a brain scan. And depending what's happening with the mother, you'll, you can see that on the face of the fetus. So when you're in the grip of a strong emotion, the brain immediately starts to go back in memory and automatically recall anything in the past that is congruent with that emotion. So pretty soon you get madder and madder and madder because you remember all the times you got mad. Or you get more afraid and more afraid and more afraid because now you remember all the times you were fearful. Or you get sadder and sadder and sadder. It's really pretty pathetic, but the brain does that. So any type of negativity triggers recall of negativity. So you want to stop talking about things that were unfortunate. Otherwise, you're going to increase your own negativity and it can impact your health. Positive thoughts trigger recall of positive memories. You know, when something good happens, all of a sudden you remember times in your life when other good things happen. Positive emotional states create coherence with the entire human system, meaning that your immune system and your brain and your digestion everything work coherently as long as they're bathed with positive emotional states positive thoughts positive self talk and so on virtually no energy is wasted when all components of a system are operating in positive congruity so you potentiate how much energy you've got because you don't lose any doesn't leak And the last one is, your thoughts will move you toward or away from success. It all depends what you picture. So long-term success is, I'd like to say, never an accident. But I really hate to say always and never with the brain, because there's always an outlier somewhere. But in general, we'll say that long-term success rarely... Occurs by accident. It's a process of ongoing, conscious, deliberate choices. You know, that's all life is. It's a collection of little, minuscule decisions that we make that collectively end up with an end product. I'm sure you've heard this quote, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Because it's not an accident. And here are the estimates, I'm sure you know those as well. It takes ten thousand hours to be world class in whatever field you want to of endeavor. And it better match your brain's innate bent or giftedness because otherwise you won't have the energy to do that. You know, this is absolutely doable. Ten thousand hours is not that that bad. And somebody said to me, 10,000 hours? I mean, I want to be really good at skateboarding. 10,000 hours, I won't live that long. And I'm going to go do the math. How many hours a day do you need to practice to reach 10,000? I'm pretty sure I've got 10,000 hours of lecturing in. I don't know if that means I'm world class, but it does mean that I'm doing it way better than when I started. So if there's something that you're passionate about and you want to do it, start checking off your 10,000 hours because that's what it takes to be world-class. It's going to take rehearsal because those 10,000 hours involve practice. You're learning information and you're putting it into practice. And it will, it will go faster If you do two types of rehearsals, actual rehearsal and virtual rehearsal. So when I was on a boat the other day, I I really do dislike lifeboat drill. Okay, I've said it once. Now I'll think of all the positives. You know, if we really have a disaster, I'll know where the station is, and I'll know how to put on my life vest, and so on and so forth. The problem is I can never find my life vest. That is a problem for me. I'm not visual. You know, the last time I was on a cruise, lifeboat drill, couldn't find my vest. I took that place apart. Under the bed, in the closet, in the drawers, cannot find a life vest. And I thought, hmm, wonder if they really would have not given me a life vest for some reason. Do they know something? I don't. And my door was open, and here I am looking and looking and looking, and this really cute young man. Uh, Walks by the door, backs up, and he goes, uh, Ma'am, what are you looking for? And I wanted to say, Well, what do you think I'm looking for, a turtle? <laughs> and I said, I can't find my life vest. And he laughs, and he said, uh, Well, yeah, it is kind of hidden. And I said, Well, do you know where it is? He goes, Yeah. He says, You know, do you want me to show you where it is? And I said, Well, yes. He says, Do you mind if I come in? And I go, At my age, No. Come on in. (laughs) He comes in. He walks over by the bed, and there's a square end table. I didn't notice it had a piano hinge across the middle diagonally. He lifts up half of it, and there's my life vest. I would never have found it. So you can do actual rehearsal. And that puts a pattern in your brain and body. Because remember, if you have done it once... Your brain's already laying down software in case you need to do it again. And so the people who survive are often the people who actually did the drill when there's an accident. When you get on an airplane, they don't have actual rehearsal. They've either got the attendant up there making all these funny motions showing you how to put your seatbelt together But they do usually now on some of the newer planes have a video. And it shows you that under your, you know, your seat can be a, a cushion if you have an unexpected water landing. Don't you love the way they use the language? If we have an unexpected water landing, (laughs) you mean we're crashing? Well, you know, your seat cushion can be whatever, or it's underneath. So they will both work if you're watching them. But the way they work best is that you do actual rehearsal, learning something about what you want to succeed at towards your 10,000 hours, and then you continue virtual rehearsal whenever you're thinking about you know you're not actually practicing or doing something else which reinforces the actual rehearsal and it's very powerful i do not know how my father figured this out at one point in my life i wanted a harp i mean a real harp and i told my father i'd like a harp And he goes, dream on, you'll get one when you get to heaven. I said, but I really like a harp. And he goes, well, they're too expensive, and we'd have to have a pickup, and ministers never have a pickup. Yeah, ministers have pickups now. There's nothing wrong with a minister having a pickup. You know, in the late 1800s, I guess that wasn't considered appropriate. So I'm wishing that I could have a harp. I'm not getting a harp. I figure I could play that with my fingers. One morning I come down in the morning from my bedroom and there's this contraption in the living room. I'd never seen anything that looks like looked like it. It's got pipes and so on and so forth hanging down from a you know, from metal bars, and I'm standing there looking at this and my father comes out and he says, I bought you a vibra harp. I don't want a vibra harp, I want a harp. This is a vibra harp. He says you can it'll it'll have a similar sound to a harp and you can play it. And I go, but it's got mallets. And you know my eye hand coordination is not the best. It goes along with not being visual. So I'm thinking, four mallets and these little bars, how am I gonna learn this? He says I want you to play a piece for church a week from Sabbath. I go, Good. Well, it won't be on the viber harp. Oh yeah, he says you can do it. So I play with the mallets a bit and figure out how you have two in each hand and you know, try to move them around for different chords and they are all over the room. You know, I'm playing something, there goes one mallet, I retrieve it, start again, this one takes a trip. I mean my hands just were not coordinated get in the car for him to take me to school and then I goes there's, there's no hope I'm going to be playing vibra harp in 10 days for church just letting you know that dad oh yeah he says you will I've already got you in the bulletin <laughs> I said I don't have time to practice oh, he says practice now I said dad I'm in the car on the way to school oh yes he says but you can practice I don't know how he learned that and I says what do you mean I can practice he says okay close your eyes close my eyes he says um, can you see the harp standing in the living room I said yes actually I can he says where are the mallets I says they're hanging in between the top four bars good he says pull them out so I see myself pull out the mallets he says all right arrange them in your hands now he says start playing well he says turn it on first so I turn it on start playing it was not long before I could practice the viber harp in my mind and I could hear myself make a mistake and correct it. My whole career, I've done most of my vibra-harp practicing in my mind after I once learned the song. So you can do that for anything. And you can do virtual rehearsal when you can't even do actual rehearsal. So this young woman came to talk to me and she said, I need help because I have to change my careers. And I said, really? And what would be the reason for that? Well, she said, my boss just told me that I have to make a, a presentation at the next sales convention about something she'd done, and I can't speak in public. And he says, I have to, and so you need to help me hurry up and get a different career. And I said, do you like your job? I love my job, I just can't speak in public. I said, sure you can speak in public. No, she said, I can't. I said, well, if you say you can't, you'll never be able to do it well. Do you want to keep this job, and do you want to learn to speak in public? Well, she says, I suppose if it's possible. I said, all right, let's start. What do you picture when you think of yourself speaking in public? Oh, my goodness, she says, it's just terrible. She said, I see them introduce me, and I stand up, and I walk toward the podium, and I trip, and I run my nylon, and all my cards fly all over the place, and I'm sprawled out on the steps. It's not pretty. I said, no, I wouldn't think it was. So the first thing you're going to have to do is change the picture. So I taught her how to be sitting there waiting to be introduced Enthusiastic that she has something that she can share with people that's going to make them better in sales because the technique has worked really well for her so they can take it and make their own. Now she sees herself being introduced. She walks smoothly up, manages the steps just beautifully, goes to the podium, lays her cards out, makes a good presentation for her first presentation. She's done. She collects her cards. People actually clap. And she walks back to her chair. I said, now you do that 10 minutes a day for the next three weeks. And for a first presentation, you're going to do a really good job. She says, I don't think you're right, but I'm willing to try it. I don't hear from her. I thought, oh boy, (laughs) maybe she didn't do it. Then about six months later, I was lecturing in a city in this woman came up to me and she said do you remember me I said I'm pretty sure I've seen your face I don't know where you have to remind me of the details she said I'm the person who the boss said I had to give a presentation I go oh so did you do the practicing yeah she said I did I said how'd the presentation go well she says not as good as it's going now but it went pretty good for the first time and I said I thought you were changing jobs Oh, listen, she said, I did such a good job. They've hired me to teach people how to do the presentations that they asked me to do. (laughs) And she says, I love it. The only thing she did was what? Change the picture in her brain. You know, the the term for that is visualization. But I don't like to use it too much because people get scared of that term, too. It just means mental picturing of what you want to have happen. And so I hear people say, Oh, I don't want to be lost. What's the picture? Being lost. Absolutely. When you say, I am saved and you picture yourself in whatever your representation is of heaven that's a whole different picture and people say well you know maybe I'd be saved at this moment but what if I'm not saved next week We'll be saved next week it's just a matter of accepting God's free gift you know what are you saying to yourself it's pathetic so brain scans I talked to you about that Took the pictures. Didn't matter whether the people were actually manipulating the wire grid or just thinking about it. Identical PET scans. I think I've talked... Have I talked to you about the 1% Advantage study? No. Okay, we'll do that quick, and then it's time for a break. I first heard of this from Maxwell Maltz. Researchers wanted to compare... How much actual basketball rehearsal was better or worse or different from virtual basketball rehearsal? So they took a bunch of basketball players who were pretty equally matched in their ability to sink baskets. They gave them, and they divided them into three groups, and they gave each group a different instruction. The first group, they said, we want you at the gym one hour a day, every day for three weeks. The only thing you are to do is to shoot baskets and try to increase your accuracy level for sinking baskets. Group number two, they said that we don't want you to go anywhere near the gym. But for an hour a day, we want you to just stay in your house. And we want you to mentally practice sinking baskets. Don't have a basketball there. You're doing nothing but mental practice. And the third group, they said, for the next three weeks, we don't want you to think about basketball. In the gym or out of it? And then they brought them back and retested them to see if their accuracy rate at the end of the three weeks was different from their accuracy rate before the three weeks. And this is what they found. The basketball players who didn't think about basketball, didn't go near a gym, Had no change in their ability to sink baskets. I personally think it's pretty amazing after three weeks of no practice they did as well as they did beforehand, but they were all excellent players. The basketball players that went to the gym and shot baskets for an hour a day for three weeks and got all sweaty had a 24% increase in their ability to accurately sink baskets. The basketball players who didn't go near the gym and practiced for three weeks in their mind only had a 23% increase in their accuracy rate. So actually going and doing it every day only gave them a 1% advantage. And that's the reason that it's so powerful to do something actually and then continue to rehearse it in your brain. So everything starts with your thoughts, and they're either going to be negative or positive, because there are no neutral thoughts, Um, disempowering or empowering. And it's one of the few things that researchers say we actually might have some free will and control about. And that is, when you become consciously aware of a thought then you choose whether you're going to hang on to that thought, keep thinking about it, take action on it, or are you going to think about a different thought? And if you want to improve, then you put the thought in the brain that you want to follow through on, and you do so. And not only will it increase your skill, but it's going to impact your health. Because positive thinking strengthens your immune system, keeps the neurotransmitters in balance, and that's how brain and body function most effectively. All right, let's get up and move around, take a break. I think this room is not air-conditioned. Would that be a good guess? Okay. We'll do the best we can do. Uh, Is there a fan that we can put at the back to circulate the air? There's what?